We're going to take a part one, part two approach today and next Sunday to the text before us that Shannon just read. Same text will be read again next Sunday. And then we're going to conclude Revelation two weeks from today with the final section of chapter 22. And then we'll be in Easter time, Palm Sunday and Easter, the first two Sundays of April. After Easter Sunday, we have two Sundays left in April and then five for the month of May, which I'm going to fill with Job. Why Job? Well, because Revelation has taken us to the end and for the hope for renewal of all things at the end, Job is going to take us back to the beginning. It's thought that Job lived in the time covered in the book of Genesis. And Job takes us back very pointedly to the beginning where hope for renewal the renewal that we see of all things at the end, Job has that hope centuries and centuries before then. And so it's appropriate to go and look at him. Today in part one here, I want to take us to two expectations that we get from this text. The first is going to be that creation gets renewed. And the second is that conquerors get raised. Creation gets renewed Conquers get raised. By creation gets renewed, I have in mind verse 1 and verse 5. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And then by conquerors get raised, look at verse 7 in chapter 21. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And this also includes daughters as well. Creation gets renewed, conquerors get raised. These are the two expectations we'll look at here in part one of both passages. And then next week, we will have two other expectations set by this text, which will be the commerce of the eternal city. A lot of people don't realize there's going to be some kind of commerce of the eternal city. And we'll also talk next week about the healing in the eternal city. So that's next week. Next week will account for everything that is no more. Did you notice that? As Shannon goes through the passage reading it, when the eternal city drops, the sea is no more, verse 1 of chapter 21. Verse 4, death is no more. Verse 22 of chapter 21, there's no more temple. Verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 3, uh, that you've got um, the... No longer is there anything accursed. Uh, Verse 5 of chapter 22, night will be no more. So we've got all these no mores that are presented to us. We'll talk about that next week in part two. So today, part one, these two expectations, creation gets renewed, conquerors get raised. That's what we're looking at today. New Jerusalem is the name of the eternal city. The eternal city Verse 2, chapter 21, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The holy city, the eternal city, the New Jerusalem. I'm also calling it a thankful village. Thankful village uh, comes from the UK. <clears throat> About 100 years ago was World War I. And uh, particular out of the hundreds of uh, Thousands of villages that are, that are uh, spread throughout the UK. 
if you received all of your sons back from World War I, you got designated a thankful village. You can still see signs up today in some of these communities, this is so-and-so, a thankful village. And that's a reference to 100 years ago, all of their sons came home. Thankful village. There's actually a, a British singer-songwriter who is today uh, visiting each of these thankful villages, making a piece of music and a short film about each one. Well, as presented to us here in these concluding chapters of Revelation, this eternal city that comes down out of heaven, the abode of God, the holy city, New Jerusalem, it's also a thankful village in that no one who is supposed to be there is missing. All of us come home to God there, a real physical place. Hell, by contrast, it's like a condemned city. We've talked a little bit about how it goes outside of new creation. It's cut off from it. New Jerusalem, as John describes it, it's this massive, architecturally impossible city, except it's the city of God. And it comes down into a renewed creation where God dwells with us there. Look at it, verse 2. I saw the holy city, chapter 21, verse 2, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven for, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So let's talk about the first of these two expectations that is set for us in this passage. The first being creation gets renewed, which is why there is then, verse 4, the wiping away of every tear and death being no more. Neither is there mourning, crying, pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But what are these former things? Now, a lot of us default to a notion that we've picked up in evangelical circles that the, the former things is, is sort of like the earth itself. I've said a number of times over the last year that the big story of the Bible, just putting this in the simplest terms, what is the Bible about? The big story of the Bible is what God is doing about evil. He drove a stake into evil's power by way of the cross, but then he will finally, as the story goes on, as the narrative sweep of Scripture moves on, he drives a stake in evil, a cross-shaped stake. He mortally wounds evil in its power and its principalities and all of that. And as the narrative moves on, he finally drives evil out of his presence. He excludes it from his dwelling place. And this has long been anticipated Throughout the centuries, throughout the centuries our Bible record on through church history, why? Why does God do this? Why does God deal with evil in putting it outside and away from, expelled from new creation? Because the former things, as referred here in verse 4, the former things are subject to evil, to the corruption of evil, to the corrosive effect. Jesus Christ... His life, his death, his resurrection, Jesus is the major plot line of the biblical story of what God is doing about evil. It all points to him. 
The crescendo comes here in chapter 21, verse 5. He who's seated on the throne, Jesus, behold, I'm making all things new. And so what we have here in these final two chapters, this passage before us this morning, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has all along been a signpost of what's to come for creation also. Just as God did not abandon his son to the grave, he doesn't abandon his creation to judgment. Just as Jesus' body was raised from the grave, so too physical creation gets renewed after undergoing judgment. When New Jerusalem descends, I've gotten to stand here and here many times in the 17 years that I've been in this church and watch the bride come down the aisle. I've yet to see a non-beautiful bride. Those doors open and most of these uh, man's men kind of guys, they start crying, man. They see her and it's just like, <laughs> you know, and they get embarrassed and they try to act like they're not crying, you know, some of them. And you just go, man, it's okay. <laughs> you got a lump in my throat too. New Jerusalem is presented like that. All the, the specialness of, of when that bride comes down that center aisle here in this church and takes her place. It's time. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's, it's supposed to be. And so when this happens, chapter 21, we skipped over chapter 20. We went through Revelation in, in sections. We had handled some of what's in chapter 20 already in, in previous chapters. So when you get to chapter 21... The old order of things has been put to death. That's what chapter 20 gives us. The old order of things, the evil and corruption of it, it's been excluded. It's been put into hell, this place outside of new creation. But when eternal city, the, the eternal city drops, this place God dwells with us in physicality, this place that contains both the glory of the nations and also their healing, it's not the canceling of creation. It's its renewal. Behold, verse 5, chapter 21, the one seated on the throne, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And they're beautiful. So what about the destruction of the world we've all heard about? I mean, I've been in the same circles you've been in. I've been in church most all my life. Well, I was pretty much born into church. I was born yesterday, 51 years ago. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> my favorite gift was somebody gave me Bob Ross socks. So I've got happy trees here on my, on my legs this morning. That was my favorite gift. What'd you do for your birthday? Our family went and did paintball. Uh, we went and shot each other. That's, that felt like a good thing to do when you're quarantined. You go shoot each other. So what about the destruction of the world? Haven't you always heard, it's all going to burn? You, know, you borrow somebody, somebody something, hey, I'll get this. Eh, it's okay. It's all going to burn. You know? <laughs> I mean, Christians can be um, dismissive in ways that we're not even aware uh, how dismissive we, we can be. Um, the proof text that a lot of people stand on when they think about the destruction of the world is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Now, you know this verse. I'll just read it to you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord, 
the white-hot judgment events that we've talked about, what apocryphal uh, imagery gives us, the day of the Lord. It's a, it's a cluster of things that, that God runs the final sands uh, out of time as we know it, but not out of time itself. He perfects time. The day of the Lord, 2 Peter 3.10, will come like a thief. Jesus said that. Peter is using Jesus' imagery. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's the term the ESV uses. Uh, other uh, renderings uh, talk about um, uh, being, uh, well, NIV, laid bare. That's the word that I'm, I'm looking for. Now, from this, 2 Peter 3.10, a lot of Christians have um, gotten the idea when we, that when we think about the world and its future and all that we make of things here, culture making and, and, and everything, that it's basically just going to be Vesuvius all over again. You know? Everything's going to uh, melt and, 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 and just go right to ash. It's all going to burn. But be sure that your perspective on this is one of finality, not the fatalism of extinction. Because creation gets renewed. Remember back to the flood? Do we have a precedence for this in the Old Testament? Remember in Revelation, as, as we go through, we're always looking for precedent. Do we have a precedent for this in the Old Testament? Remember the flood? Noah's Ark surviving the flood waters? It was destruction, and yet the earth was still under all the water. The flood washed away in judgment what God wanted removed. Now the same idea is in 2 Peter and Revelation, only it's another element involved, not water this time, but fire is the remover. You know, we have something called uh, the second law of thermodynamics. I was not a good physics, chemistry, slash biology, slash science student. I was better with the humanities. But as I understand it, the second law of thermodynamics essentially says that energy is always decreasing so that the, the universe will eventually flame out. What you've got in 2 Peter 3.10 is the second Peter law of thermodynamics, <laughs> which says that God will set the world aflame in judgment. It says it not just in 2 Peter, but all through judgment passages. But this is in order to cleanse it, to cleanse it of every trace of evil. He's not exterminating the earth. He made the earth. And go back to Genesis. He delighted in everything he made. He is remaking the earth through the judgment. Peter's go-to verse there, the word is laid bare. If something is laid bare or exposed, it still exists. So if we take a fatalistic view, which unfortunately a lot of evangelicals sort of default to, it's all going to burn. That's just, this is sometimes why, uh, when we begin to unpack it, why we have this sense of our jobs as just, well, it's just what I do to make a living. It doesn't really matter. My work doesn't really matter. The earth really doesn't matter. It's all going to burn, and that's that. So why bother doing our best for anyone, really? It's not going to last. Why bother maintaining material possessions or refurbishing them? Why uh, bother cultivating anything? Why polish the brass on a sinking ship? You ever heard that one? But see, that perspective... It, It'd be like if we went out to eat together and we're leaving the restaurant 
and we're, we're headed for, for my truck, let's say, and, and you say to me, what a great meal that was. Every course, it was just such delight to eat. And I say back, yeah, but it's all headed for the toilet later. You know. <laughs> How often do you want to go out to eat with me after, after a return <laughs> volley like that? Isn't it wild that the very people who believe most in creation, evangelical Christians, that we should appear to not care so much for what happens to creation because we think it's all going to burn. Don't take up with toilet ecology, okay? Don't take up with toilet eschatology. What does Romans 8 say? You go, well, yeah, but creation is groaning. Yes, Romans 8 says creation is groaning for its redemption, not its annihilation. The portrait painted for us in apocalyptic passages is there is a finality, but it's not fatalistic. Fires of judgment destroy in the same way that smelting a metal destroys what is not valuable. That goes away. It's called dross. And then you have the metal that you want. Something valuable emerges from it. Let me, let me put it another way to you to make this point about renewal. Look at the terms you've got in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And that word for new means new in quality. And it's the same word for new. Now, if you're watching live stream at home, this is not your bathroom break. All right, he's getting into Greek words here, so time to get some pretzels. Stay put. Okay, this is important. I know when you say, well, there's a Greek word for this, and everybody just go, oh, just tell me something I can use tomorrow. I know how we are. Um, the word for new here in Revelation 21, 21, a new heaven, a new earth, means new in quality. What's significant about it is if you go back to a very well-known verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, new in quality. Behold, the old is gone, the new is come. Another behold you've got there as well. You don't miss the beholds. Behold is a, is a word of, of, of joy and delight in what God is doing. It accompanies his, his great acts all through Scripture. And God saw what he created, and behold, it was very good. And God makes us a, a new creation. And behold, the old is gone, the new has come. Behold, I'm making all things new. Genesis, 2 Corinthians, Revelation. Here's the, here's the train running through. Now, here's the thing about Greek words. There is a Greek word one would use to designate something that's new because it starts over. You wipe it and you do it over again. New with respect to age, but that's not the word for new used here. The word for new in quality is used. And if you think about it as parallel to 2 Corinthians 5:17, that famous passage about our redemption, then what's the picture? Just like when God redeems you, he cancels your condemnation, but he saves you, loves you, shows you your person, your social security number, your imprint, he shows you in your person whom you will be forever. He shows you salvation, redemption, makes you new in his grace and love for you. The world is not canceled out in condemnation either in the sense of be, being annihilated. So it's a new earth that emerges 
from God's judgment. The former things pass away, the passage is telling us, meaning the corruption and corrosion we presently live under, powers that are in opposition to God, all of that that's tainted with sin, it's expelled. What does the new earth look like? Well, I I expect it to look a lot like this one. Just smelted, scrubbed of the effects of of sin and rebellion. That's the former things, verse 4, including viral things like what we're dealing with now. We are embodied, corporeal, that's the fancy word, that's the word, the $5 word they teach in seminary, beings. We, we, um, we have physicality, and, and so this virus that we're, we're dealing with now, it, it risks and threatens health. That's going away, not just eventually when researchers and doctors and medical scientists find the vaccine, as we have confidence they will. It's going away forever, and everything like it bio issues, spiritual issues, all of it. In fact, think about it this way, the only marks of sin in the new creation will be the scars visible on Jesus' body. That's it. It's the only memory you'll have of your sin. What we have to look forward to, expectations set for us by this text, It's really a wonder. It's a marvel. It's beautiful. I was was with a friend this week who had just visited the Agazu Falls in Argentina. It's one of the seven natural wonders of the world. And he said, man, I wept standing there taking it all in. It was overpowering beauty. And you weep because you know the one who created that knows you by name and loves you more than you know. That's what breaks you in spots like that. It's not the beauty itself. It's that the beauty points to something beyond itself. And yet the beauty is so captivating and, and, and wonderful in the truest sense of the word. And yet it, it lifts the one who knows the Lord to awestruck praise and wonder. The beauty for us of the physical world is the physicality of it. (laughs) And so I don't think that goes away in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, right now, March 15th, 2020, we're having to be careful about physical proximity to one another. But that's for now. It's not for then. Can we be done with the idea of spiritually floating on a cloud with a harp, that this is heaven. What a crime for that to be perpetrated on our imagination. That Looney Tunes idea. See, that feels to me more like social distance, distancing. <laughs> you know, I've got my own cloud. and cling, 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 cling. Playing Tim McGraw songs. Cling, 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 cling. Learning them on my harp, you know. You know old Hank Williams Jr.? If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. If they don't have a grand old Opry, I'd just as soon stay home. 
I've actually been humming his Country Boy Can Survive. That's been my coronavirus tune of choice. Now, as a Southern boy, I can understand Hank Williams Jr.'s sentiment. If heaven ain't a lot like this. The reason is because Southerners, probably more so than any other people in this nation, we, we are very place-oriented. That's why when I drive to Savannah, Georgia to see my mom and I go through Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia, it all feels like home. I'm from Alabama, and so, you know, I'll always point to my kids, there's the Vulcan, you know, the iron statue. I called it the idol when I was a little boy. Daddy, why is there an idol on the mountains of Birmingham? (laughs) I was so pious, even in my youth. Why is there an idol here? Let me out so I can speak against it. And so I'll say to the kids, there's the Vulcan, look at the Vulcan up there. And we'll go by Talladega, and I'll go, woo, you know, we go by, because that's what all rednecks do. And we'll get to Atlanta and we'll complain about the traffic, but secretly, privately, we're really glad the South has a global city like Atlanta. And then I'll go from the stretch from Macon to Savannah, it's nothing but woods, and I'll go, oh, it's nothing but trees. But I love those trees. I love that being in my field of vision is just trees. I remember uh, a friend of mine from Texas who moved to Tennessee said, um, this is a friend from Nashville, said, you know, I, I, I just never gotten over having trees block everything. <laughs> out in Texas it was wide open I could see where I was going we have a special love of place but you know what Hank Williams Jr. is reacting to not just you know that heaven might be anything like Newark <laughs> you know, a different NJ sorry if you're from Newark he's reacting to the, this wispy idea of floating on clouds in a kind of detached socially distant spiritual fugue is that you lord of course it is i'm singing to you all the time right no no what about the jasmine what about the honeysuckle and pine trees and ruby red ripe tomatoes my favorite food please don't inundate me with ruby red ripe tomatoes I, sometimes i'll say stuff like i'm just thinking how many how much bob ross stuff am i going to collect this year you know how many tomatoes are going to he likes tomatoes send him tomatoes I once had a guy here in the church who early on, I said something in a sermon about I liked Mountain Dew. This guy gave me a 24-pack of Mountain Dew every Sunday when he saw me. And I finally had to say, I, uh, the Lord, he, he said the Lord had called him to give me Mountain Dews. <laughs> and I had to stop drinking Mountain Dew a while back. And, and, uh, and I, I finally had to say, you know, you're going to have to go back and ask the Lord if you can have a reprieve because I've got so much Mountain Dew that you keep giving me. There's a good reason to think that the physicality of heaven contains things that we're familiar with now. Now, we'll develop this a little more next week as the passage goes on. We'll see that there's some kind of commerce, or at least the fruits of commerce here, attend there somehow. Isaiah 60 also has something to say about this. But for now, just know the New Jerusalem is a beautiful city, a garden city with a river and produce and commerce of some kind, according to these texts, gainful use of time. And it's all glorious because how things will be then is how things ought to have been now, but sin marred it. The beauty is the physicality. If heaven ain't a lot like resurrected earth, <laughs> it, ain't, it probably ain't heaven. How great will that be? We were having a discussion at home recently well, I don't want to go to heaven until I've gotten to do certain things, you know. Totally understandable. 
position. Totally understandable because all we know is the here and now. But when then swallows up here and now, man, I love how Paul puts it. He quotes uh, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 64. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I, lo I love that. I look forward to that. But now let's also think about our second expectation from this text, and this will be briefer, that conquerors get raised. I've talked about creation getting renewed. This is our expectation set by the text. Now conquerors get raised. Look again at 21.7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What is the heritage? The heritage is everything that you get through the resurrection of Jesus. I should have saved this text for Easter, really. Maybe we'll come back to it. Look up at verse 6, right, at, right above, 21.6. And he said to me, it is done. The it is done echoes, it is finished from the cross. It is done, verse 6, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. It's another way of saying, I, I'm in charge of life and death and everything in between, everything before, everything beyond. It all runs through me. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And in heaven, a woman who Jesus met at a well smiles every time that's read because she heard it first. I've told you along the way that the message of Revelation is not Jesus wins. Because when Revelation opens up all the way through, Jesus already won. And so the message of Revelation is that the church wins. The message is the church, despite her flaws and everything set against us at all times, in every generation and culture, including we being our own worst enemy at times, the church will make it to the glorified end awaiting us because Jesus has won. That's the good news, the gospel according to Revelation, which is what it means to conquer according to the gospel. How the gospel defines conquering, again, go back to Romans 8. same passage tells us creation is groaning. That's the passage that also tells us, Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors. What, it means, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? It means that you've been loved with a love that raises the dead. That's the heritage we've come in on. That's what the Alpha and the Omega gives us. Not just a love, but a love that actually raises the dead. Yes, we have a response to make to God. We have to develop enduring faith, resilient faithfulness, be willing to participate in the fellowship of shared sufferings. Jesus, a witness for him, may require our life. We're told this in Revelation. We're shown the martyrs. But just like how faith works, when we say faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone, works validate faith. Likewise here, no one conquers by their, by their own works. That's not the point. We don't earn anything from God. It's not a reward. We conquer by his works. When we understand Jesus' works, when we experience what he's accomplished for us, we want faithfulness. Look at verse 8, this list of things that we don't want characterizing. And really, verse 8 is the contrast to conquering. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And I could also take you over to 1 Corinthians 6, that the church is full of this as well. But, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, you were redeemed, you were washed, you were made new. 
These are those who haven't had that experience. And not because God didn't get to them, but because, as we've been shown, the nature of sin and rebellion throughout Revelation, they want these things. Every one of these things in verse 8, as you're looking at the list, is each and all itself a conqueror. Competing conquerors. They all come out of love's disordered. We need the love that raises the dead in order to order our loves. Because, see, I, I know I can be conquered by cowardice. I know I can be conquered by faithlessness. I was just reading an author this week. It's not a Christian book. It's actually a book on the art of memoir. And uh, the writer said, the Amer here's her quote, The American religion, so far as there is one anymore, seems to be doubt. Whoever believes the least wins because he'll never be found wrong. The most awful thing you can be in our culture is wrong. I can be conquered by murderous anger. That's part of verse 8. I, I can be conquered by leering lust. I can be conquered by a lying tongue, my own or others. Almost anything can be made into an idol. That made the list, including good things. That's the list here in verse 8. From one angle, the Christian life, Christian living is about not getting conquered by anything listed in verse 8 here because we've been redeemed from the penalty of these things. And we know everything here in verse 8 is going to get cast out, expelled from God's new creation, His new heaven and new earth, new Jerusalem. But being more than conquerors, Remembering this Romans 8 language, loved with a love that raises the dead, conquerors get raised. And Jesus gets all the credit. Raised to physically abide with God in his city of splendor. How does this happen for us? Does it happen because we're, we happen to be spiritually smarter than most people? Because we're less susceptible to sin or our sins aren't as bad as others? Not at all. It's because Jesus has given me living water to satisfy every thirst. So I don't have to go seeking my satisfaction in, in that, in, in salt licks, but in everything that God has promised to be for you and for me, for us in Jesus. A conqueror learns to set his or her sights further up and further in. Let me, let me conclude with this. Further up and further in is one of my favorite phrases. It comes from the Chronicles of Narnia. The last book in the series is called The Last Battle. And further up and further in is the rallying cry for the Narnians. As Aslan is remaking old Narnia into new Narnia. It's an allegory. C.S. Lewis took apocalyptic imagery as he found it and he, and he turned it into this uh, wonderful story. And so what Aslan keeps saying to Narnians as he's remaking Narnia is further up and further in. It's how Aslan characterizes actual life in New Narnia. It's further up and further in kind of life. And there's a place where uh, Lucy and the fawn, Tumnus, are surveying all this. Lewis says, about half an hour later, or it might have been a hundred years later, for time there is not like time here, Lucy stood with her dear friend, her oldest Narnian friend, the fawn Tumnus, looking down over the wall of a garden and seeing all Narnia spread out below. But when you looked down, you found that this hill was much higher than you had thought. It sank down with shining cliffs thousands of feet below them, and trees in that lower world looked no bigger than grains of green salt. Then she turned inward again and stood with her back to the wall and looked at the garden. 
I see, she said at last thoughtfully. I, I see it now. The garden is like the stable. It's far bigger inside than it was outside. Of course it is, daughter of Eve, said the fawn. The further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. That's New Jerusalem. The outside is vast. It's given to us as a vast, architecturally impossible place. But the point is the inside. Because of who is there. We are there. And the Lord Jesus is there. In all his glory. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this time that we've had to look at your word this morning. In midst of uh, all that has been preoccupying us, we're thankful that we can look out and above and beyond it. And we can see hints and clues of realities yet to come that we anticipate wholeheartedly. And if we don't, Lord, that you would make it so for us. You would help us to wholeheartedly want what you have prepared for us. Lord, at the same time, we need to live fully in the present. And we need to uh, live in this present as uh, people of faith and people of courage. Help us with that, particularly in this period of time where it feels like the, something about the world is falling apart. Lord, you have sustained us, you have graced us, you have given us truth and righteousness in your Son. We thank you that you'll do all things well. Hosanna to the highest, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.